Hey, Jordan, how's it going? Hey, Rob, what's up? Not much. I was just perusing the news, you know, as we do, just channel surfing, flipping through the various, you know, the MSNBC, CNN, yep. kind of just doing the rounds. Okay. Know, and seeing some really, what I think are frightening and disturbing news stories. Well, there's been no shortage of those, but which which one are you talking about? Well, frankly, I'm seeing an, I'm seeing some reporting that um, that is claiming there are now some high-ranking people in the Democratic Party that are taking this moment to criticize the Biden administration and Joe Biden and suggest that he's not doing anything and he's not you know, meeting this moment in American history, you know, with the kind of forcefulness that it demands. And it's really alarming stuff. Uh, I, I, I'm not used to seeing this kind of like radical left wing sentiment being aired on this kind of mainstream media platform, especially from people in the democratic party. And I think it's really alarming to see this kind of really ugly divisive rhetoric coming out at a time when Democrats and liberals need to be united. And I don't get it. It's very frustrating. Yeah, I think it's it's really troubling. There, it wasn't like Democrats knew this was coming. I mean, they were totally nope. blindsided by this. Or we didn't, you know, know how this. We didn't have anything in writing about how the Supreme Court was going to uh, act on this. It just had a left field. Just one day, boom, Roe was gone. So you got to understand, like they're scrambling. Uh, we should we should be united in this and keep your eyes on the prize. But these these people who are criticizing him, these are like the like radicals. Is that who you're talking about? Oh yeah, yeah. Like re- you know, like really kind of these like hardcore extremists. I saw some really yeah. ugly comments by, you know, Deborah Messing, for example. Oh boy. And what I want to know about Deborah Messing is what does Putin have on you? When did he get it? <laughs> <laughs> when did he get it? What kind of disinformatia does it? What kind? Sorry. What kind of compromat does he have that's making you flip like this uh, uh-huh, at this moment? Yeah. Because that's the only possible reason that I could think. Listen, listen, Jordan. It's not just about Roe v. Wade. It's not just about abortion rights. It's about the handling of the coronavirus pandemic. It's about the increasing likelihood of a of a drastic economic recession, the environmental crisis, the climate crisis. The uh, the seemingly constant, you know, mass shootings and gun violence. And just because Joe Biden, you know, quote unquote, hasn't done anything about these issues, I'd regardless of that, I don't think it's a time to want to air this kind of dirty laundry and to go and kind of spread this kind of really ugly, divisive rhetoric. I don't think that's acceptable, regardless. Totally. Of I think top down, it's been fantastic. On the day of the Dobbs decision, when we lost the protections enshrined in Roe. I looked to the Democrats for a calming presence, and what did I find? Congressman Andy Levin posting yoga pictures on Twitter. That soothed yeah, my that soul great. like a balm. But more than that, like what more do you want from these people? They are providing clips of Joe Biden talking about abortion that people can post on TikTok. If that's not action, I don't know what is. But more than that, like think about it in the bigger picture. Joe Biden is committed to this. He said it from the get-go. And it's not like he's out there nominating anti-choice judges. No. Oh. He's not, is he? Wait a minute. Oh boy. 
I think that's like the most absurd, one of the most absurd things that they've done uh, probably in the past year. And like, just the, the fact that they were even considering this and then we saw the story from CNN today that not only were they considering this in exchange for some shitty deal with Mitch McConnell, we're going to announce this guy's nomination the day of the Dobbs decision. <laughs> um, and it's like, you, you could you say, oh, well, they didn't know exactly what day. Because like, in that story, someone in the White House was assuring them it wasn't going to come on that Friday. But there were only like three possible days left. What? First of all, why are you even considering it? And yes, it's absurd. I think everyone listening is probably in agreement that is not even something you should consider as part of a deal. A, a lifetime appointment of an anti-choice judge in Kentucky. Just no, non-starter. But the fact that they were like, yeah, this this week in general is going to be a good time to roll this out is just yeah. beyond me. Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, you don't, you're saying you don't trust Mitch McConnell? Like, this is what, what Biden must be getting all kinds of great return on this, uh, on this, making this, cutting this deal, right? What's he getting? It's, uh... McConnell promises they'll consider they'll consider like voting for some of his like lower not court even nominees, that it's possibly they or promise they won't block any more of those nominees <laughs> which like how nice. how many times has he said something and done something else like McConnell like McConnell is a rat his word means nothing and it should mean nothing that's what you get in exchange his his promise that he'll do something yeah well it's just been like it's been really stunning I think seeing the complete lack of response to this that we were kind of alluding to in the beginning there. And the amazing thing is like we, we, we talked a few weeks ago when this decision, this Roe v. Wade decision leaked and some of the speculation was like, well, perhaps this leaker, whoever it was, is some kind of, you know, a Democrat or a liberal that wanted to signal that this was coming. So to give the administration time to like figure out a plan of action to that they could, uh, that they could bring to people in this moment, people that are very justifiably uh, terrified about their their rights being stripped away. And it's just like the, the amazing thing is that none of that happened. And, you know, we talked about the, the yoga poses. There was singing God Bless America. There was, uh, there was Nancy Pelosi reading a poem from an Israeli poet. There, what, what else is there? There is, uh, and just like endless calls to just like, you can vote, you can vote and, and fix oh, this. Dude, dude, soliciting donations to the DNC, yeah. uh, to Pelosi's campaign, D-Trip, like to, to the party itself at a time when, as our, our guest points out, we should be donating, not just donating, but making recurring donations to abortion funds. And they're like, they're, I think I saw the total haul was like 80 million for the democratic groups yeah that's the horrible thing is that this is actually working this like completely cynical uh crass weaponization of this in order to continue to fundraise for the democratic party while they're sitting idly by and allowing this stuff to happen that's that just works as well so it's just like what motivation do these people have to actually act and not continue just to fall back on this and use this as a fundraising scheme when it just keeps on uh, delivering the goods for them right and they haven't laid out a plan or a path forward and yes i understand what we need to do is codify this stuff we need to fight it in the states and ideally there should be you know federal law that that guarantees a right to an abortion and to do that sure you would need more democrats but 
it's very frustrating to hear you need to vote for us and get out there and vote and support us and donate to us when a couple weeks ago they just had a a a house runoff in texas where you had a progressive pro-choice woman against an anti-choice a centrist corporate basically republican anti-choice man and the top democrats in the house all did get out the vote calls campaigns you know rallies for the anti-choice candidate and he barely won by like 150 votes so and then immediately after that they don't lay out anything going forward like we don't know exactly what their plan is sure biden is now saying that we should make an exemption for the filibuster but what if that doesn't happen then what and it's frustrating that we had to basically beg for some sort of information or some sort of plan when you know what the rights plan is they're already saying it it's national ban that's what we want next so it's it's not it's not unreasonable for people to question the get out and vote rhetoric but you can't vote right now like what are you you gonna do and beyond that you're still protecting people in your own party who are anti-choice i i i I just am i'm blown away i i i my expectations were low and somehow it was even worse than i thought it was going to be yeah i mean just even looking at like the senate math of how this upcoming uh election is going to go the idea that they're going to be picking up senate seats like already is like extremely unlikely and when they've failed to kind of deliver anything on their agenda and so many people are alienated. Like I was looking at, at Biden's polling numbers with young people, especially young people who are primarily affected by these kinds of abortion bans, completely underwater in terms of popularity yeah. with these uh, younger demographics, explicitly because even though our friends in the in the like liberal consulting world don't seem to understand this, they can't wrap their minds around why this guy is so unpopular when it's quite clear that when you promise people to like fight for them and fight for an agenda that's going to help them and then systematically abdicate the responsibility for any of the issues that this group cares about, lo and behold, they're not really, they don't really enjoy that and appreciate that too much. And that's the result. This idea that they could codify abortion rights with just a few extra Senate seats, that's like, it's already kind of unlikely. Like the idea that they're going to get 10 Senate seats is completely basically an impossibility it's really looking very bad for the democratic party. And like, I don't know if this is going to like, if they're counting on this to be something that galvanizes people, it not only galvanizes them to donate to the party, but to go vote for it. It's a pretty dangerous game. And it's like, they're walking right into this, this situation where they're going to lose influence and lose whatever ability they may have had to try and reverse whatever damage has been done is going to be the opportunity to do that is going to be completely just gone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we get into a little bit of that and a little bit of what, of what you can do as a politically powerless person who listens to the show and cares about this issue, as you should, uh, we get into that with our guest. Um, but on the donating to abortion funds part, if you go to protectabortionrights.com, you can donate right now to uh, the Texas Equal Access Fund. Uh, that's something my partner has has set up and already uh, 20,000 plus has been raised to go to the Texas Equal Access Fund, which is uh, a, a, an amazing life-saving group in Texas that helps people get out of state and get uh, uh, get an abortion because they deserve it. They deserve that ability. And Texas, before the Dobbs decision, basically outlawed it. So protectabortionrights.com, it's, it's 
amazing. How did that uh, the fundraiser go that you did? I don't want to say I did it. She did it. Yeah, I, sure. Uh, my partner did it. You can, she you put it say, together. Yeah, you can, she I was at you, the marathons. royal you, the editorial. And sure, you were there. sure. Yes, of course. Usted in Spanish. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, she, yeah, she, she's been raising money for, for weeks and did a marathon live stream on Twitch over the weekend and, yeah, brought that total up to 20,000, 20, which was just spectacular. So I think some of the listeners I saw in there were donating. Uh, a lot of the TYT community was in there donating. I really, really appreciate it because the money just goes straight to the group. So it was it was great. Fantastic. She did amazing work. And I don't think there's anything else from that stream that needs to be mentioned or, yeah. or was noteworthy or anything else. Okay. Really. Because I heard yeah, there I mean, was some just... there was some like dancing and singing and stuff that was going on. Is there any truth to that or huh. is that? I mean, she she's a singer. So, you know, that uh, right. that's probably what they were talking. Maybe she just kind of. Move her shoulders and there was no around. one else. No one else there that was not that I can participating in that kind of. <laughs> I see. I want to know who fucking told you this because <laughs> I didn't see you there. So I want to know who told her this. I want to know who told you. I've got my little birds. On my, list. my little birds yeah. are always paying attention. Guess and Lodane are ice because the, that's the crossover I know. Yeah. exists. I'll never. Uh, I'll, never yes. I'll never tell my sources. The leakers. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I'll always protect the leakers. Yeah, I, I, uh, to inspire. I, look, for the fundraising, crowdfunding type stuff, that's I've done it for for years, and it's effective. It gets people to donate. I will happily humiliate myself if it means people donate to a cause I care about. I have no issues with that. I don't take myself very seriously. Uh, so happy to just fucking degrade myself. Whether it's you know eating that spicy chip which i've now done for charity like four times and it gets fucking worse every year to getting a shitty embarrassing actually i won't say shitty because the artist who is my tattoo artist is phenomenal and she does like all my other stuff and she's a great artist so it's not a shitty tattoo it is embarrassing that i have a fucking Fortnite tattoo on my body for the rest of my life but we raised 25000 for healthcare for the homeless in Baltimore. I'm fine with that. So this, to encourage people to donate, I agreed to fucking dance seductively on the stream in a wig to Careless Whisper <laughs> for six, and once we hit 16000 Then once we hit 20000 I did a duet with my partner. She's a singer. I mean, she went to fucking Berkeley. Like, she can okay. sing. It's like, she's like legit. I didn't get into Berkeley. <laughs> I did right. knew it wasn't even worth applying. I can't sing well. And we did a duet of a whole new world from Aladdin in costume after we hit twenty thousand. Very that nice. That vod doesn't exist. Don't even bother searching for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's gone. It's been scrubbed. <laughs> yeah. Yep, there's there's no it. video evidence yeah. because you had to be there <laughs> to see it. But yeah. please protect abortionrights.com. We set up the link to redirect right to the GoFundMe uh Texas Equal Access Fund. It's a great, great organization. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's really cool that you did that. It's it's much as I enjoy turning the screws to you a little bit. Really cool that you were able to do that, you and your partner. Congrats to you both. Um let's bring on our guest, Kate Smith. Did you already introduce Kate Smith? Not yet. We should do that. Okay. Let's introduce our guest, Kate Smith, who's going to be joining (laughs) us in a few minutes. Do you want to just let everyone know? Yeah. (laughs) How long is this transition? Okay. Well, I I didn't know if you wanted to give her a little intro. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We could do that. Kate is with Planned Parenthood 
Federation of America. She's great. She used to be a reporter, and this was her beat. Abortion was her beat at CBS News. So she understands the landscape nationally. She gives us some good historical context. The attacks in the states leading up to this, the judicial strategy that the right took to get to this moment, and lays out a path forward. What you can do, how you can take action beyond just voting for Democrats in November. What are real tangible things that you can do right now? And what are the attacks ahead? Because the right isn't going to give up. They're going to keep they're going to keep at this. So Kate lays out all of that. It's a fantastic conversation. We hope you'll stick around to the end. Yes. Let's bring her on now. Kate Smith is going to be joining the program right after this. joined by Kate Smith, who is Senior Director of News Content at Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Kate, now we start all of these conversations the same way, and I realize as I'm saying this how weird it is, especially for this episode on this topic, but we have to ask you because we ask everyone. You're scaring me. You're scaring me. (laughs) Well, you should be scared. This is serious business. Yeah. Kate Smith. Are you a gamer? <laughs> that is such a more innocuous question than I was expecting. Yeah. Okay. Um I don't I don't it's serious. Yeah. Wow, I, you know what? I, I have to say I didn't think I was going to go public with this today, but you know, what the heck? I I think I'll Breaking just admit news. it. Breaking news. Okay. Um I embarrassingly really like to play the Sims. <laughs> okay. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I realize that's like in the gamer world. I, I I feel like nobody really considers that gaming, but I think it, that counts. That's gaming for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I love to like just kind of like get lost for two hours in The Sims and just like it's like a brain reset. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, definitely. I, I, I guess I guess yes. Okay, so you are a gamer. <laughs> um, now how, I like what The Sims your... language. I'm always in, I always enjoy that when hearing them interact with one another. I'm not really oh, I don't I don't really play it myself, but that I always I like that though. That's cool. It's so soothing, and I've seen a TikTok trend where they use like an audio that sounds like The Sims talk, The Sims language, and it it makes me very happy every time I hear it. Now, what kind of Sims player are you? Are you a <laughs> you know just I, like just a standard? Hey, this is my house. This is my family. Go. Oh, this guy's going to work. Oh, this person's in love, or are you, uh, you know, the normal kind? You know, like pulling the ladder out of the pool, cl- taking the doors off the walls. I have been pulling the ladder off the pool since I was in like fifth grade. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I am Professor Chaos when it comes okay. to the Sims, um, but it's like a little bit. It's a little bit of both. Okay, so like you know, Chaos isn't fun when it's just like you know. A poorly laid out game like you have to like really set these people up for like absolute disaster so i like to play it like <laughs> you know like a weirdo like actually like oh i gotta get the promotion gotta you know pay my bills on time and then you just like wreak havoc on them and so nice nice i'm a, har- a horrible person i guess <laughs> this is how i relax <laughs> i have to say i don't think i've actually I think the only person that knows I play The Sims is literally my husband. So this is uh, wow. this is a really big coming out moment for me. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. Kate Smith exposed. Exactly. Yeah. All, exactly. all caps. The title. <laughs> uh, Kate, you are here uh, in addition to uh, gaming talk uh, to give us an overview 
of the past few weeks on abortion rights, uh, or now in some states, the lack thereof because of the Supreme Court. Uh, but if you could give us a little bit of background for people who don't know how we got to this point, you know, I think people understand, yes, the right has been attacking the right to choose in this country for decades. But they, I don't think some of them quite understood how that operated in this country. And there were two Supreme Court cases, you know, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that you know, laid out these rights uh, and, and the obstacles and restrictions that some states could impose on people. But now that is all gone because of the Dobbs case out of Mississippi. Could you give people a brief overview of, of what those were, what those did, and after these now successful attacks by the right, where we are now with this Dobbs case? Yeah, yeah. I think the best way to understand where we are is to look a little, to look to the past, right? So in 1973, you have Roe versus Wade, and it's it establishes that states are not allowed to ban abortion. It's kind of like a little bit of like the opposite of what you saw a couple of weeks ago, right? And at the time, like some states had banned it, some hadn't. And then this pretty much just like laid it out and said, states cannot ban this procedure. You have to have it available. What you saw after that, obviously, was um, a, lot of, a lot of like anti-abortion people went to restrict it in different ways. So it's like, okay, if I can't ban it, I'll do it. You know, it can only be available, um, you know, by an OBGYN or, you know, there's a waiting period or there's this or there's that. So like basically regulating it nearly out of out of reach for a lot of patients, which is what you saw with Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And that establishes that states can't place an undue burden on patients while they are um, trying to get an abortion. Right. And so what that means in like kind of in, in a practical setting is that states, any law that a state would have had to pass uh, for a patient to get an abortion, it has to pass this undue burden test. And it's, you know, is this law outweighing the whatever like safety, and I'm using quotations with my fingers here, whatever safety reason the state has used to pass this law that can't get in the way or you know, be more important than the, the fact that someone can actually get the procedure itself. So kind of an example of some of the laws that get like caught up in that would be like the waiting periods, like I said. So like, for example, Missouri had a 72-hour waiting period. Um, a court there found it wasn't an undue burden, but in other states, other courts did find that to be an undue burden. Um, and kind of most famously, the undue burden test was a Supreme Court case, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstadt in 2016. And that was whether, it's, it's really complicated and like I think the the answer is more important than the, than the, the details, but to give you an example, it's... Um, it was about whether doctors who provide abortion had to um, have admitting privileges at local hospitals. Um, court struck that down, said it was an undue burden. And another thing is that, you know, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, this undue burden test, and Roe v. Wade, the states can't ban abortion. These two cases had been reaffirmed many times over by the court. So, you know, not only would these be just considered normal precedent in kind of the legal world, they would be considered super precedent because they had been tested they had withstood that test and they had continued, right? Um, which is not the same for a lot of different cases, for a lot of different you know, Supreme Court precedents. As the, that's a different kind of standard and, you know, kind of what makes the Dobbs case so stunning and the fact that they took this case so stunning. So taking another step back, states have been passing restrictions and bans on abortion 
ever since 1973. Okay, so this was like a 49-year-long battle and pretty much like throwing everything at the wall. So you saw, like I said, the admitting privileges law, you saw waiting periods, you saw what kind of medical professionals are allowed to perform a procedure, perform the procedure. You saw restrictions on telemedicine. You saw gestational bans, obviously. So, you know, 22 weeks, 20 weeks, 18 weeks. And then what kind of shifted things and what you know presented a much more clear threat to Roe was when the, this kind of fringe idea of the quote heartbeat ban kind of came into the mainstream. Um, and that was around 2018. And then in the 2019 state legislative session is when it really, really picked up steam. And just to pause for an example, because just it's, it's interesting to me, these, you know, what these bans are is they ban abortion after a doctor can, te- can detect like kind of like fetal, like cardiac activity activity, like like just kind of like electricity, really, um, that typically happens around six to eight weeks. Um, and, you know, for a lot of people who are hearing this, like, yes, that is long before many, many people know that they're pregnant, especially if you're not yeah. trying to get pregnant. That is absolutely before you probably know that you're pregnant. Um, and this was a very fringe idea within the anti-abortion movement. They really didn't like it because it, it, to them it was extreme. And I'm, and I'm, I'm not saying what abortion supporters believe. This is what anti-abortion people believe. They believed it was too extreme, too fringe, too strict. They really liked this kind of incremental work that they were doing rather than just going wholesale for these like pretty much total abortion bans when you're thinking kind of in practicality, right? So in, ni- in 2019, the table shifted. And of course, this is after Kavanaugh's Um, appointment to the Supreme Court, you saw state legislatures being much more willing to consider these. And for the really the first time, they were getting out of committee, they were going towards, you know, full House votes, Senate votes, getting to the governor's desk. And I think it was about a half dozen, maybe maybe seven or eight, but quite a few states passed these. And that was a real turning moment for this anti-abortion movement, because the first time you were really looking at something that was so directly attacking Roe. And all of these things do attack Roe. Like virtually any any law that would restrict abortion before viability, which is around 24 weeks, let's say, any law that restricts abortion before that is considered in violation of Roe. But these were the first ones to be so extreme about it. Um, and even 15 weeks, which was the Dobbs case, was considered one of those. Um, and the reason why I bring all this up is because the case that you saw in front of the Supreme Court you know, oral arguments in December decision a couple of weeks ago, it was not one singular case, right? This was like very, very much, um, you know, a coordinated effort to just really like, I mean, I almost want to say this expression is probably inappropriate, but um, it's just like accuracy by volume. Like, I mean, it's literally was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bans just to try to make it through the judicial system to get in front of the Supreme Court. And obviously the one that did was this 15 week ban um, and one thing that I think kind of got, got a little lost in the sauce, because there were just like so many things to, to look at, um, this 15-week ban, so Mississippi passes it, obviously, immediate TRO, you know, restriction. Um, they can't put it in place, obviously, in violation of Roe. District court says, absolutely not, violation of Roe. Goes to a circuit court, the circuit court. And actually, I, I would recommend anyone read this um, this decision, because I found it really interesting from uh, Judge Reeves um, was like 
obviously this is against Roe and you are abusing the judicial system. Like this is this is like an affront to the American judicial system, the way you are trying to get what you want right now. Um, so they were like completely called out. And then in the middle, seriously, like literally in the middle of the Amy Coney Barrett um, SCOTUS hearings, the Senate, the Senate confirmation hearings, um, the AG of Mississippi lifts it back up to the Supreme Court and says, hey, not only do we want you to look at this, we also actually want to change the central question to be whether Roe is good law or not. And that's what was like so wild about this case is like, it was so gamified, if you will, right? Um, and it, it was very clear that that was the one that could make it. That was the one that was closest to the Supreme Court. And then once you have a 6-3, it's A, much easier to approve a case, despite there being no ambiguity on a circuit court level about whether or not there was questions about road. There were none. Um, and then obviously, when the decision comes down, what it looks like, right? 6-3. So that's kind of like where, I think it's like a, a not maybe not brief and i apologize but that's kind of the history of where we how we got to june 24th and the reason why i say all of it is because i think it's really important to note that like it wasn't this case it was this case but it wasn't this case it was the it was the momentum of hundreds of cases over the course of literally 49 years so it's you know it wasn't a singular thing it wasn't a one-off thing and if it wasn't dobbs you guys, it was going to be something else. So, and that's the reason why I say all of that. <laughs> you get kind of the sense that for people in the kind of liberal political establishment, they just, and this has been talked about endlessly over the last week or so, but there wasn't really a sense of urgency about this when it comes to protecting abortion rights. And you get the kind of sense that there's people in the political establishment that maybe didn't think that their opponents were really serious about going all the way with this and kind of assumed that they were kind of cynically using abortion as a way to rile up their base, as a way to fundraise, and similarly to the way that they they use protecting abortion rights to to rile up their base and to fundraise. But it feels like there was a sense that they didn't and they didn't really think that people on the right, these hardcore ideologues that have been doing this, were really serious about going all the way and really repealing uh, abortion rights uh, across the country. Um, from someone I know, I, I feel like I know the answer to this, but just from someone that works kind of in that in that uh, world, um, was that like was that disconnect frustrating to you? Because obviously you know full well that it, they the people on the right were very very serious about this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like for um, for context, like I used to cover abortion policy at CBS. Um, for the network. And so I was like reading a lot of this legislation and you know what, like I'll be the first to admit I had a terrible take back in 2020, which was that like, I think this is a bit of like dog catching the bus. Like I yeah. think when push comes to shove is like the Florida governor really going to pass a 15 week abortion ban. And at the time I really believed the answer was no. Um, so that's my bad take that didn't age very well, <laughs> um, because that's the opposite of what you're seeing. You're seeing that these like these politicians were very serious about what they were doing. And it's I think like we're all like trying to absorb it. Um, it is frustrating. I think to me what the bigger frustrating thing was, was just like acknowledging that this was a real threat. Right. Because like it got like such a. It was thrown away so quickly by so many um, 
of the Democratic candidates for office by, you know, just politicians in general. Like, I'll give you an example on the like 2020 um, presidential, like Democratic presidential candidacy process. Um, like nobody had any answers for what to do about Roe. And like, you know, in retrospect, that's insane because you are at the time you are like two years out from Roe getting straight up overturned. And when I was like talking to candidates and like reporting on this, there were no ideas. It was just like the kind of lame, oh, I'm going to codify Roe. Like, okay, great. How? Like, what are you talking about? That's not like hardly in your power to do so. Um, And then the only person actually, the two, two candidates, the only two candidates that really had had seemed to given it real thought was uh, Senator Booker and Senator Harris, former Senator Harris. And they, you know, former Senator Harris had this idea about, actually both of them did. It was kind of like almost like this Voter Rights Act style legislation where you would, like, states that were hostile towards abortion would need to go some sort of like through DOJ pre-clearance test. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. Obviously, it would be incredibly difficult for them to actually implement that given that they would need support from uh from congress to do that but i think like that's what was frustrating to me the frustrating thing like knowing that you're seeing hundreds of state laws getting passed with the sole purpose of overturning roe versus wade for the sole purpose of the moment that you see happened and like nobody really cared like nobody had any ideas at that time like I think that was the, like the really frustrating part to me. And like, obviously it's frustrating to watch what's going on. It's more than frustrating. It's, uh, it's, I mean, I barely, it's hard to even come up with words to really describe what I'm seeing. Um, like it's, it's devastating. It's infuriating. Um, but frustrating, I think I would use to describe like kind of the process by which we got here. Right. Yeah. I mean, we saw over the past couple of years, as you talked about these, you know, surreptitious attempts to outright ban it. And sure, people were sounding the alarm, but it just felt like there was this collective disbelief from the broader left that it wouldn't result in an outright ban or overturn of Roe. Like, the Texas, uh, Texas's SB8 was essentially an outright ban. My partner lives in Texas. I haven't talked about this on the show before because I was waiting for her to talk about it first, but in January, she needed to terminate a pregnancy. And she found out week four at the same time she had COVID. So that also delayed her ability Mm -hmm. to even get care. And by the time she found it, which was like a couple days late, she, it was already basically impossible in Texas to get an abortion. So she had to travel to DC because it's much easier for her here to get it. And she got it, but like not everyone has access to that. Like not if we, we split the cost and it wasn't, cheap uh but at least like you know she had a place to stay here but other people don't have that so these other states had with had these insane pre dobbs basically bans like how else was she going to know like unless she's just taking pregnancy tests week one and week two which is totally unreasonable you're exactly right and i think like that's why i say frustrated because like we already saw like where states wanted to go like Texas has had a six-week abortion ban in place for nine to almost ten months before Dobbs came to came to be, right? Um, and like, so we know, like, we we have all these answers. Like, we know that like 
if you are low income or if you're part of like a like a historically marginalized community like these laws affect you in incredibly different ways um and it's just that's like the frustrating part is like there's no like speculation about what happens next we already know i ah. and that's i think too it's like frustrating like you know you hear a patient with a story like that and like even though like you had the means to be able to get it done like so many it's still a struggle it's still not easy like i don't is that really like the healthcare, the best we can do for healthcare in one of the world's richest countries? That just doesn't sit right with me at all. It's 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 such a problem. It's such it's such an obvious problem. And I think, ah, oh God, yeah. It's just such an obvious problem. And so like un American. I think that's what I keep coming back to about these like abortion bans. Like to me and I and I this is probably naive of me, look like I'm an upper middle class white woman, like my America is different than other people's America. But the idea that you're like regulating someone's healthcare like this, getting in the way of their opportunities, not letting them control your own body without the state being involved, like that's that's just not American. I, I, I just it's not American. Yeah, unfortunately, I think some of these people are immune to pointing out their hypocrisy. That it doesn't seem to do anything. It doesn't seem to accomplish anything. As blatant as yeah. it is, it's just in how in your face and completely outrageous it is uh, it, how they can simultaneously hold these two thoughts in their minds at the same time it doesn't seem to have any impact when you point this out to them unfortunately no no it doesn't um it's it's crazy it's just like they're so so much of the rhetoric is so obviously hypocritical but yet it just it bounces off them you're right i don't know <laughs> um so on that on that point though you know people are going to need to travel out of state if they live in a state where they were subject to a trigger law or these ongoing attempts by state legislatures to implement outright bans in their states. And I was wondering if you could give people an overview of what happened immediately after Dobbs uh, on that trigger row front and what you're seeing from these bizarre state legislators trying now to also, I don't know if this would hold up, but also try to block people from even leaving the state to get care, which, to your point, is so bizarre that they would outlaw leaving the state. And this ultimately sends things underground, because if people need care, they're going to find it. The result is going to be people are going to experience much more unsafe situations. But what have you seen? So I guess what is what happened after Dobbs with these trigger laws and where does it go from here uh, in, in some of these state legislatures. Yeah. So, I mean, look, like I said, these state legislatures were preparing for the, I mean, preparing is like the understatement of the year. They were, they had been uh, immense amount of preparation for that Friday decision. Right. Um, there were about 13 states with trigger laws. And for those of you who don't know, trigger laws are these laws that basically they ban abort. They acknowledge that Roe was good law and the law like the law's language is like, but if Roe ever gets overturned, this law immediately goes into effect. Um, so there were 13 states with those in the books. And right now, as of, let's see, it's Wednesday night, there are 11 states that have abortion bans in effect. And these range from all out abortion bans to 15 week abortion bans, but all have bans in place that prior to Roe versus Wade would absolutely not be allowed to to be to be in place of course um you know i say that but texas sb8 so in theory um what you are also seeing though is that 
you know, people like Planned Parenthood, ACLU, Center for Reproductive Rights, they are all um, an immense litigation campaign to really fight each and every single one of these bans. It becomes a 50 state battle for every single, you know, every single state. And what's interesting is that it's not a one size fits all. It's not just like, oh, well, let's like, you know, get the boilerplate six week abortion ban litigation. Like, it's not like that. It's actually much more complex than that. Um, major caveat here, I am not an attorney. <laughs> so there there are people who are smarter than I am that can really get into the weeds on this. But the the baseline level is that it's really a lot of these battles are being fought with like state constitutions. And so, you know, some of the legal defenses are, well, yes, Roe is overturned, but your state constitution would, in theory, guarantee the right to an abortion, even if you want to ban it. Like, it might not be unconstitutional, U.S. constitutional, but is unconstitutional in your particular state for your state constitution. So that's like one of the one of the ways that people are, you know, looking at it. Um, but the reality is, is, you're right. There are just going to be durable bans in place that there are some patients will not be able to overcome. There will be patients who will be pregnant against their will and give birth against their will. Um because of these bans. Um, but I do want to push back on one thing you said. Um, it's unfair to compare pre-Roe illegal abortion landscape to what it is today. And the, and the reason being is because of medication abortion. So medication abortion, it works up until, um, kind of depending on things, but in, in the early parts of your pregnancy, um, and it's very, very, very safe, incredibly safe. Um, and we didn't have access to that before Roe. And so it, I do want to push back that it's like necessarily dangerous for people to do this. You're not, the reason being is because we don't want to further stigmatize abortion, right? Like we got to this place because of all this abortion stigma that exists out there. So the reality is, is that there will be a lot of self-managed abortion using abortion pills, pills by mail. Um, but the reality is, is that people are going to be doing that you know, in the absence of a choice, whether they wanted a surgical abortion or not, right? So I think one of the things that we're trying to really hard, really hard to do is like, you know, we don't want to call it like underground abortion. It's like, you know, it's medication abortion, it's self-managed abortion, it's largely really safe, but you have to like create the education about it and tell people how they can do this um, and what it looks like, how they can get it, what are their state laws like. Um, and that's like a big front of the, um, of the battle moving forward as well. I wanted to allude to something you were kind of talking about earlier when you talk about the the ways that the right has been organizing this for decades, because I think there's been this kind of effort in the wake of this decision to um, to kind of promote this idea that you can accomplish things through this kind of incremental progress and just by voting for the right parties. And look what the right did. They just they kept voting for the, the people that said that they wanted to support this project uh, for years and years, and they accepted this kind of incremental progress to get to the point that they got to, until they got the thing that they wanted. And I think that really like undersells the the massive kind of right wing machine that has been built to bring about this decision. It wasn't just a matter of people voting for politicians, but there's these this massive infrastructure in place in the media, in the the, the political world. Uh, churning out judges that are going to uh, have the have the right uh, rulings on things, um, you know, promoting anti-choice or pro-forced birth uh, candidates. 
I think this idea, like, it's a really trite takeaway that, like, well, the best way to to push back in something like this, this horrible thing, is just to organize and to vote and to keep voting for the right people that are going to do the right things. I think that really undersells this massive machine that was been that was built, highly well funded, highly well coordinated, uh, and well organized, that has been working overtime for now years and years and years to get to this point. Um, that's not something that can just be fixed uh, by by going and pulling the lever for someone that says they're going to do the right thing, you know? I completely agree with you. I mean, look, everyone should vote. Voting is incredibly important, and it was, it is what gets you to the, the friction points where you can make a difference. Absolutely. Full stop. But it took a lot more than voting to overturn Roe versus Wade, and you're absolutely right. Like, and I don't, I don't want to scare people, but it took half of a century to overturn Roe versus Wade. And that was a coordinated fight with groups who it was their entire focus was just to do this one thing. And they did it, but it took 50, almost 50 years, right? And so I think like one thing that I'm like really trying to like brace people for is that like, you're in this fight for the long haul. You are not like, we got pushed out of the constitution you don't get put back in the constitution overnight or in a couple months that is a multi-year commitment and like the stories that we're hearing it is absolutely a fight that is worth pursuing for as long as it takes to get you back in the constitution to get the power over your body back like i can't think of something that's more important than like power and control over your own body but i do think we need to like level set with the base and with you know our supporters and be like hey come to the protest make your voice heard don't you know don't lose sight of this battle but buckle up because it ain't gonna fix itself in a couple months it's it this is a long-term fight and i say that for two reasons first like level set set your expectations but also like it's not a sprint it's a marathon like you know brace yourself this is it's like it's an emotionally really hard work to do this work to be out in this fight to be talking to people about this and you know do it at the pace that you can handle because for you to make a difference you need to be doing it for a long time so what what would you recommend if someone asks you okay i'm frustrated i obviously can't vote right now because it's not an election (laughs) (laughs) what what do i do how do i how do i help people in need how do i help people who need care how do i contribute toward this marathon uh what can i do as an average person without any political power to fight back so there's like some monetary answers to that and some like movement answers to that i'll go through the monetary ones quickly because they're really straightforward so first of all if you can donating to an abortion fund especially like in a recurring way so like five dollars a month like abortion fund of your choice gets gets five dollars um that will be immensely actionable and useful so abortion funds you know your partner jordan if you didn't have the resources to be able to travel out of state they would have been able to call an abortion fund to help them do that right so they do everything from travel to the procedure cost itself which i don't know if you guys know this but it's like Abortions are kind of expensive. <laughs> like the cheapest it gets is $500, assuming it's not covered by your insurance. And let's face it, if you live in a state that's banned abortion, chances are the state's also gone after insurance coverage of abortion, right? So, you know, it starts at $500. It only gets more expensive from there. So these abortion funds will pay for that. They'll, you know, do your lodging. They will handle um, like 
uh, child's care costs, like the average abortion patient is already a mother. So you have to think about child care costs. So that really makes a difference. And when we talk about the longevity of this fight, rage giving, amazing. Obviously, it's incredible and it helps people immediately. But if you're still giving in 12 months from now, that's what will really make the difference for the like individual patients who need access to the procedure. Um, and then obviously independent clinics, your local Planned Parenthood clinics, like we talk about how we expect 26 states to ban abortion in some way, shape or form. But the way I like to think about it is like, you know, from a logistics standpoint, is that that means that 24 states are absorbing 26 states patients. And that is not an easy thing to do from just like an operational standpoint, you know, take abortion out of it. Just that's just a very, very difficult thing to do. So if you can get involved in a monetary way in a recurring way, that's super helpful. There's a way for you to volunteer. That's really helpful. Um, so those are kind of the things that you can do like immediately helps patients, but from a, a movement perspective, um, this is kind of a lame answer, so let me explain. <laughs> um, <laughs> protesting is really, really valuable. And here's why. For abortion specifically, for everything, it's great. Like, use your voice. It's amazing. It's a right that you have. Um, but for abortion specifically, there's this weird thing that happens, which is that it has been taught to us that it's this, like, you know, the debate of our generation, like, you know, dev like divisive, like splits America. Fact is, it does not. It does not split America. Eight in 10 Americans want abortion to be legal in some capacity, right? Only 9% of Americans believe that their state should fully ban abortion. And guess what? States are doing exactly that. Like Oklahoma right now bans abortion at fertilization, okay? Like no one wants that, literally. And the polling backs me up. Don't believe me, like Kate Smith Planned Parenthood. Just nonpartisan polling tells you that. And to me, I think it's because people don't like to talk about abortion, right? Like, it makes them uncomfortable. They don't like it. I mean, oh, my God, like, it happens from sex sometimes. Like, <laughs> you know, like, no one likes to talk about sex. Everyone's very conservative. So there's so many reasons why people don't like to talk about abortion. And I think what happens is in that void, it ends up having the appearance of, like, the polling appearance of something that it is not, which is, you know, this, you know, issue that's 50-50 down the road. And why I think protesting is so valuable is it because it helps dismantle that fallacy. It helps, you know, if someone supports abortion rights, but they're like, oh, well, I I'm probably in the minority of my community. When they see that protest happening, when they see people using their voices, you know, maybe it's not even in a physical way. Maybe it's in like, you know, you post something on your Instagram story, which I know is performative, but it's something. Um, it helps that person who thinks that they're in the minority realize that they are not. And I think when we're talking about this marathon and all these things that are going to need to happen to get us back, get us back to a better place, right? Because we've talked about how even with Rowan Place, it didn't work for a lot of people. So how do we get back to that place? I think the first step is making it so unbelievably obvious what the real polling is, where people really feel about this. And, you know, something that I, I never hear people talk about, but I think is like wildly important, like the largest professional organization for obstetricians and gynecologists believe in the right to abortion, believe in legal abortion. So does the American Medical Association. Like, let's listen to our doctors. Let's listen to the people who actually have spent so much of their career 
to be able to answer this question. And then in the absence of that, let's listen to like the actual polling, what people want. And so my long winded way of saying that is, you know, when you see these protests, join one, you know, when you see an opportunity to like, maybe like share a post on Instagram, like share it. Because I think the biggest thing we can do right now is let people know that we're in the majority. What happened is something that the minority wants, but the minority was just more vocal than we were, right? Like, that's all you can say. Um, So use your voice. Um, And it's not it's not empty. It's, It's important. Um, And one thing that we're doing is trying to encourage people to like tell their abortion stories. Like, you know, there's so many for so long (laughs) abortion and it's, it's getting a lot better. So I don't want to like dismiss the work of some great artists, but like for so long abortion in the media was like, it was like so inaccurate, (laughs) like about like what we, who we knew the average abortion patient was. We knew that they were in their twenties. We knew that they were, you know, already had a kid, but yet every time you'd see abortion in like a movie or TV show, it's always like, you know, the 16 year old, like cutting school to go to the Planned Parenthood for their best friend. Right. Even though like, that's actually like a very small, small percentage of abortions that happen. So all that to say is like sharing your abortion stories, like normalizing this, getting rid of the stigma is incredibly powerful as well. So, you know, in the you know, to the extent that people are comfortable doing that, that really moves the needle. You know, it's not, it's not empty. It makes a big difference. Yeah. And this is something that came up the last time we were speaking about this as well, is that I think that there's people in politics and media, even people that would, that would kind of claim that they're pro-choice or have, have pro-choice records, but I think who have contributed to the stigmatization of abortion through the language that they choose to use about it. And I think that's, that is one thing that it's important that people start to recognize the, the ways that language can contribute to this stigmatization and suggest that it is some kind of shameful thing that we should be embarrassed or, or find it impossible to talk about. You're totally right. And I think like one piece that is so important is that I feel like so many people who support abortion rights and especially like in a, in a public way. So like a politician or even sometimes like activist groups, um, they take the playbook from the right and they work from there. I think we should throw the entire playbook out. Like to your point, like the right has told us this is like a shameful, terrible thing. Well, guess what? It's not. I don't care. <laughs> like, it's just not. Yeah. It's healthcare. They have the right has told us that this is something that should be regulated by po- like by politics. So we should pass laws about it. No, it's healthcare. Listen to a doctor. Like, it just full stop. End of the sentence. And I think like there are a lot of different examples where the right has you know really authored the playbook about how we talk about abortion, how we talk about reproductive health, and now is the time to we need to rewrite the rules. And to your point, like, it's not good enough to just support it. You need to support it and also dismantle the the infrastructure that the right has built that got us to this point. And, what, and a lot of it is language. I was also wondering what you think of uh, something really kind of alarming um, and sinister is going on as well at the same time. We've been covering uh, this on the show as it progresses, but not only is there is there this 
relentless assault on abortion rights and women's rights as well. There's also a re relentless kind of assault on transgender rights as well, which is now growing to growing in scope to include like all people in the LGBTQIA community. And the the really weird thing about this is that this assault is coming from the same people. It's these it's these social conservative evangelical reactionaries um these are the ones that are that are engaging in these campaigns trying to strip away rights from women trying to strip away rights from transgender people um or others other marginalized groups and at the same time there's kind of this meme taking hold where there's this certain line of thinking this was exemplified in that new york times piece that came out the other day about how you know, while the right is assaulting abortion rights, the left is also contributing to that <sighs> by trying to have more gender neutral language or like trying to uh, su show support to trans women or suggest that that transgender men or non-binary people also need abortions as well. And kind of trying to conflate these two things as if the people that are advocating for transgender rights are more gender inclusive language and these like social conservative evangelicals that are stripping away people's rights are somehow both contributing to this and avoiding the very obvious thing which is which is that transgender and other lgbtqi people and women are both under assault by the same people and and conflating that or or suggesting that that trans people have somehow contributed to this is a really kind of dangerous and and a, a way of of framing this right and i don't think it has any basis in in reality Oh, it has no basis in reality. And I think it's it's the same as what I was saying. It's like we're rather than questioning the playbook that the right is giving us, we're just doing it. Right. I mean, the right has been always very successful in splintering apart the left. Right. And put in and trying to put each person in their silo. And the reality is that the, all of these things are very intersectional and you know you can't have one person can't be free if we all aren't and if one per you can't have autonomy over your body if your neighbor doesn't everyone has to have autonomy over their body so these all of these issues are so intertwined and you're right like the idea that the people who are you know championing bodily autonomy are somehow contributing to you know anti-trans legislation is absurd no the people who are contributing to anti-trans legislation are the people who are writing it and championing it like that's um, it's not, it's not the same thing. Um, but I mean, one thing, you know, an anecdote that I, that I think is really powerful here is that when I was at CBS and I was seeing these laws getting, and it was specifically with trigger laws. Um, I really wanted to cover them. I thought they were really interesting. This is 2019. And I remember telling like my editor at the time, and it was like, these are crazy. Like, this is very real. Like if Roe versus Wade gets overturned, like, the landscape happens like very, very quickly. And like, and I'm seeing all these laws. Like I, I think Roe was like really on the chopping block. We really need to like you know, amp this up. And it was, everyone was like very, they thought it, there was like, there was like no way, it wasn't happening in their brain. There was no way they could wrap their head around the idea that Roe versus Wade could actually get overturned in their lifetime, let alone in the next few years. Um, and there, it was just a total surprise. And I say that because what was happening concurrently was that these the exact same exact same process by which Roe versus Wade got overturned, an unrelenting wave of state legislation that was largely ignored by national media. The same thing is happening for all like for trans issues, for marriage equality. The same thing is happening. Bills get put forward every year 
you know, trying to dismantle marriage equality. Bills get, we're seeing so many of like the trans bills happening now, and I'm, I'm very happy to see them getting coverage because coverage is like step one, right? But it's already happening. And so I think like when we're thinking about these things, I think I think we did ourselves a really big disservice by kind of turning the other way when people said, hey, I think Roe is on the chopping block. We need to pay attention. We made a mistake by not, by not, and I don't mean we, Planned Parenthood didn't know what's happening. I mean like the media and like, you know, other areas, but we, we can't afford to do that again. Cause you know, it's fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Right. Well, I believe it's, I won't get fooled again. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, uh, well, Kate, is there anything else you wanted to add? We really appreciate you, you joining us, explaining all of this, coming out as a gamer. I think this is a really critical <laughs> conversation, and especially the gaming part. Yeah. Um, I there's one piece, um, and that I that I do really think contributed to where we are today, and I'm and I'm not seeing people fix it, which makes me very very nervous. And I think like one of the ways. The, the reason why this whole thing got as far as it did, why we, why Dobbs even got to the Supreme Court to begin with, was because a lot of the way in which we talk about abortion, the way it gets covered in, in media, right? It's often covered from, it's a local story. Like these are inherently like local news stories. Texas passes a state law about a, a healthcare procedure. That's a decidedly local news story. Um, so maybe they get picked up in local media, maybe they don't. Um, and if they ever get picked up in national media, it's always, it's never patient focused. It's never logistics focused. It's always very like political focused, which I understand why, but it doesn't really like serve patients and it doesn't really like, it doesn't speak to the larger movement of what was happening. So I think so much, even though it was this 49 year, well-coordinated, well-funded battle, it did largely go under the radar for the most part. And I'm kind of seeing that continue to happen, which makes me very, very nervous. So I think like when I'm thinking about what a post-Roe world looks like, I really want to make sure that we're not losing, as we're talking about the strategies and as we're talking about what this means for midterms, what does this mean for you know 2024 presidential, we're not like losing we're not like missing the forest through the trees and about like what this movement is, how large this movement is, because the reality is this movement hasn't ended for the anti-abortion groups, right? Like this is the beginning. When I was talking to anti-abortion people as a reporter, they never thought Roe is the end. Roe Ro is just opening the door to where they want to go. So I think like, I'm really going to be paying attention to like, how are we talking about what happens next and making sure we don't make the same mistake again, because you don't want to wake up and there's a federal six week abortion ban in place and be asking yourself the same question of how did we get here? Um, so that's, just, that's something I'm thinking about a lot as we move forward. I think we really appreciate it. Um, this is a lot of helpful context and information. Where can people find and follow you and your work uh, and again thank you so much for joining us yeah i'm on i'm on twitter at by kate smith at by kate smith and um i also have been trying to use instagram to share things um and videos uh, there's like a lot more 
like video content. But unfortunately, my Instagram is a relic of my personal life. So <laughs> the handle for that one is um, La Kate Kate. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you'll be if you follow me there, you're on the inner circle and you know, we're immediately friends. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>